0: From the gospel according to St. Luke, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Good morning, friends. We are wrapping up our series this summer from the gospel of Luke. We've been preaching about it all summer, and uh, we've been sort of coming at one topic from different directions And the topic is this, the kingdom of God. Jesus, just last week I preached about this, that uh, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So we are called, we are actually told by God himself, Jesus, to pray for the kingdom of God. What is it? If we are called to pray for something by Jesus himself, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and we pray for it every Sunday, every time we pray, we pray the Lord's Prayer for the kingdom of God, what are we praying for? My dad used to say to me uh, when I was a young man, even when I was older, he'd say, look, if you don't know what your goals are, you'll never know if you get them, right? (laughs) So if you don't know what you're praying for, you'll never know if you get it. So I want to dial in on this idea of the kingdom of God today. It's a big topic, so I'm not going to tackle the whole thing. But I do want to introduce you to two things today. This kingdom of God, what exactly is it? And what does it mean for you? That's my two points. The first point is the what, when, and where are the kingdom of God. What is this thing we pray for after all? And maybe more importantly, and it's really profound, I hope you think, what does it mean for you? as a Christian in August in Vero Beach. Two things, what is the kingdom of God? Where is it and when is it? And secondly, what does it mean for you? So the first thing I wanna dial in on, and this gets a little bit heady, but stay with me because it's important. Um, the king, what is this kingdom of God thing? We pray for it, what are we praying for? Well, the kingdom of God is actually something which occurs all throughout scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example, if you know your Old Testament, there is a kingdom of God. It starts with King Saul in the Old Testament, goes all the way through. So in one sense, the kingdom of God is something from Jewish past. It is an historical reality, the kingdom of God. With me? The kingdom of God at one point is a historical reality. But the problem in, then, for us to talk about it as something today we pray for, there's a big problem, and the problem is this, that As 21st century post-enlightenment Western people, say that five times fast, as post-enlightenment 21st century people, people like us, everybody in this room, we are trained to perceive time in an essentially linear way. What do I mean by that? It sounds heady, it's pretty basic. Every person in this room believes in three periods of time, right? The past, the present, and the future, and our Enlightenment forebears, trying to get rid of God and make it all very rational, said that the past, the present, and the future are three t- periods of time that are separate from each other, right? There's the past, there's the present, and there's the future. But let me just say this today amongst us. Nobody actually really believes that. The Enlightenment idea of the past, present, and future, we say it, but nobody believes it, and you don't either, and I'll prove it to you. Because we all know that our past, our history, our upbringing, our families, the kids that teased us in the playground, the people we married, the people we didn't marry, <laughs> those people from our past, all the events up till now affect you in the present. The mistakes you've made, the accomplishments you've achieved, the lessons you've learned, the past is not just something in the past. It actually affects you in the present, right? Is it a discrete, is it separate from the now? No, it isn't actually. The past affects our present. And indeed, I would even say this that you can look at your past, you can look at your own past, and you can probably predict pretty well what you will decide to do in the future. You learn, from your, you learn from your mistakes, you plan things differently. My point being here is that everybody, nobody believes the past, present, and future are little tiny packages tied up with a bow. I'm getting to the kingdom of God in a moment. Don't, don't, just stay with me here. But we say we believe in past, present, and future, but we don't really believe that, and it's not quite that simple. Because the past influences our present, And the past actually influences our future. But here's another one to consider. How does the future influence your present? Maybe how does your future worries influence how you perceive the past? Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. The future hasn't occurred yet. When you fear the future, when you fear the future, we call that what? worry, right? What will happen to my kids? What will happen to my exam? What will happen to my doctor's appointment next Tuesday at 4 p.m.? What about my kids and my grandkids? What about my money? What about my finances? What about how long this sermon will go? I've got a lunch appointment, right? We worry about things in the future, the things that we fear. The future impacts the present, but it can also be good. What uh, What if you're really excited to Watch NFL preseason football today, right? It's not a worry, it's an anticipation. The point I'm trying to make here, not to get too wrapped up into this, but the, the thing I want you to see, which is just the point, right, is that the past, the present, and the future, the Enlightenment view of time is corrupt and wrong. It doesn't work. The point is that the past, present, and future are not discrete periods of time because nobody lives that way, which means it's not true. The, the Enlightenment view of time is a lie, but the Bible, you see, actually nails it. The Bible does not take this simplistic, overly analytical view of time. The Bible actually says that the past, the present, and the future—it's hard, hard language—but it intersects in a much more organic way and a, in a real, a more real way—a way that actually explains the world in which we actually live. That the past, the present, and the future are all intertwined. Yeah, they're separate in one sense, but they, are, they affect each other, right? The past pr- affects your present. Your future worries affect your present. The point I want you to see here is that the kingdom of God concept is something that's hard to grasp because it exists in the past, it exists in the future, and it also exists in the present. There's a term in theology... It's called realized, you can write this one down if you want, Um, realized eschatology. It just means this. Eschatology means the end of the world, right? When Christ returns, when the kingdom of God is established fully. But theologians say, but that's already kind of there. The ball's already rolling, you see. When Pontius Pilate nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, just like that, right there. He put over the head of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He was actually right. He didn't mean it that way. But Pilate was, what Pilate was saying by God's direction was the kingdom of God was established by Christ as the King. And now, friends, we live as Christ's body in the already, but the not yet. Do you see it? Am I confusing you? I hope not. The point I want you to see here is that Christ will return and he will set all things to rights. I'll give you an example. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says to those gathered, truly I say to you, listen to this, in the new world, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. A future thing. When we know from Scripture, from the book of Revelation and elsewhere, that when Christ returns, when he comes back from heaven where he is, he'll be seated on his throne of glory, and he will rule a new kingdom, a a renewed, reconstituted Eden. The dead shall be resurrected. Those whom you have lost, my father, be be personal about it, who have died will be be resurrected, and they will join with us with Christ in a new, reconstituted Eden. And if that sounds far-fetched, As my grandfather once said to me, that sure is damn hard to believe. Well, yes, it is, but if that's what Jesus says and Jesus tells the truth, you have to believe him. He tells us, he promises us that when he returns, the world will be put to rights. Everything wrong with the world will be made good. All the hopes and dreams that you and I have will be fulfilled. But there's more to it. In one sense, the kingdom of God will be in the future But in one sense, and I'm gonna show you this today, it's already here. Look at verse 32, or I'll read it to you again. In verse 32 of today, Jesus says this. Fear not, little flock. That's you guys. Little sheep, (laughs) bat. Fear not, little flock. This is a zinger. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute, that's a present tense right there. See, the kingdom of God is not just a future thing. That's the fulfillment when Christ returns. But when Jesus says, fear not, y'all. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to the world at large. He's talking to believers. He says, fear not, y'all. It is, it is your father's good pleasure now to give, give you the kingdom of God. And notice something really, really profound and powerful. Jesus says, fear not. Little flock there does not mean uh, small in number, it's a diminutive. It's an affectionate term. My little, fear not, my little sheep. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you a question. He says, "Fear not." What are the things? What are the things that you fear? Fear for your kids or your grandkids. Fear about someone you know who is sick or dying. Dying. Fear of financial worries. Fear of Whatever, man, fill in the blank. We've all got something, right? Let me ask you a question. All fear. Did you ever notice this? I'd never thought about it until this week. That all fear, listen, is future-based. All fear is future-based. And we fear the future because we can't control it. And we fear the future because we don't know it. And we fear the future because it's not clear. And we don't know what's going to happen, so we fear it. All fear, friends, is future-based because we don't know what's going to happen. Well, here's something to consider. What if that wasn't true? What if you knew exactly what was going to happen? What if you knew exactly how things were going to play out? What if you knew exactly how the future would go? Would you fear? Nope. Jesus says, fear not. It's not this is not just trite fear refrigerator magnet theology. He's saying, fear not, because the kingdom of God is here. And what he says to us is, you know, friends, that Jesus wins. We all know that there is suffering and brokenness in this world, and we all know that this life here can sometimes be nasty, brutish, and short. This world is fallen. But we also know that when Christ returns, the dead will be raised, justice will be served, everything wrong with the world will be righted, and Christ will reign as king. In other words, as the reggae singer would say, here's the guy, every little thing's gonna be all right. Who sang that? Bob Marley. What if you knew everything was going to be all right? Would you fear? The answer is no, which is why Jesus says, little flock, let me paraphrase a little bit here, little flock, don't worry. Your Father has given this to you. The battle is won. The future is decided. We know how it ends. The kingdom has already arrived, but has not yet been fulfilled. So we are called to live differently, and I want to give you two examples of how that affects us in the present. If the kingdom of God is here and, and being uh, uh, and coming to pass, then there's two things I want to show you. First thing that the text tells us we have to do is we have to learn to live in radical generosity. What do I mean? Look what he says. He says, fear not, little flock. Your father has given you the kingdom now. Therefore, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Well, if you don't have to worry about anything, you can give it all, maybe not give it all the way, but you can give to the needy and be generous, radically generous, because you know that your father has cared for you. And then Jesus says something really, really important. He says, give to the needy because where your, listen to this closely, where your treasure is, there your heart will go also. In other words, if you want to invest in things eternal, then invest in things eternal. Anybody here have a a portfolio? Probably a few of you do, right? Where your treasure is, that is in fact where your heart goes. We like to think that we put our money in things we love, Mm mm-mm. What Jesus says is the things that you, where you put your money, your heart will follow it. And what I mean by heart is not emotions. I mean what you worry about, what you you take joy in, what you take pleasure in, what you concern yourself with. Jesus says where you put your treasure, there your heart will go. And you've got two options, earthly things that decay and rust or things in heaven, the kingdom, which is even now coming to pass Friends, living as kingdom people, living in the already but the not yet, living in joyful expectation for Christ to return should lead us to lives of radical generosity, but there should also be a life of radical joy. Jesus says in verse 33, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Did you ever stop and consider something I never had until four days ago? That joy in this life is the assurance that things are going to be okay. Think about that. That what makes a person joyful or bitter, joy in this life is the assurance that no matter what happens, things are going to be okay. There was a book written about the early church, a guy was a Christian, and he wrote about how the early church converted the Roman Empire. The Romans, of course, in the very beginning of the church were very cruel and persecuted the early Christians. And they would do things like take whole families, Christian families, march them out into the Colosseum, crucify them, burn them alive, eviscerate them, feed them to the lions. You get the drill. Not a pleasant experience. The Romans would cheer, the Romans would get together, they'd be drinking all day, they'd bring these Christians out to, to uh, murder them, and they would cheer like at, at being at an Eagles game, right? Just woo, they were just, the, the crowd would go wild. And what the Christians did, is they came out to certain death, to certain suffering. Do you know what they did? I tell you what they did not do, they did not plead for mercy. They did not beg for forgiveness They did not kiss the ring. You know what they did? They sang hymns to Jesus. Know why? Because they had joy. Because they knew that they were people that lived in the kingdom of God. And because they knew that they were in the already but the not yet. And they had joy even in suffering because they knew the kingdom of God had arrived and would be consummated when Christ returned. Let me ask you a question. This is a biggie. Do you have joy in your life? Do you want it? Yes, you do. I am, I am convinced this past week thinking about this, praying about it. I think joy is 100% correlated with your focus on things to come. And I think misery and bitterness is 100% tied to the worries and concerns of the world. I'm convinced if you want joy in this life, you've got to start concerning yourself with the life, with the kingdom to come. And that's why Jesus says, pray for this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is where joy comes from. That is why these Christians could march out into the Colosseum singing hymns because they knew the battle was won. Do you want joy in your life? If you do, let me challenge you to think through this to consider that you are a Christian whose life has been paid for by Jesus Christ, who has been called and given the kingdom even now, even as we wait for its fulfillment. Friends, all of us, including me, are distracted and worried and fearful of all sorts of things, future-based. But Jesus reminds us this morning to be vigilant, to keep your lamps burning, to be ready, to be frosty, my friends, that he's coming back that the battle is already won, that the kingdom is unstoppable, and that you are a part of it. So we pray, Father, keep our heads up and our eyes forward as we wait for the return of your Son. Remind us that we live in the already, but the not yet. And give us expectant, joyful, fearless hearts as we wait for Christ's return. In his name.